Chapter Eleven of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven The One Word of the Hour. If we women fail to speak the one word of the hour, Susan wrote Anna E. Dickinson, who shall do it? No man is able for no man sees or feels as we do. To whom God gives the word, to him or her, he says, go preach it. This is just what Susan aimed to do in her new paper, The Revolution. Its name, she believed, expressed exactly the stirring up of thought necessary to establish justice for all, for women, Negroes, working men and women, and all who were oppressed. Her two editors, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Parker Pillsbury, reliable friends as well as vivid, forceful writers, were completely in sympathy with her own liberal ideas and could be counted on to crusade fearlessly for every righteous cause. What did it matter if George Francis Train wanted space in the paper to publish his views, and for a financial column, edited by David M. Mellis, of the New York World? Brought up on the anti-slavery platform where free speech was the watchword, and where all, even long-winded cranks, were allowed to express their opinions— Susan willingly opened the pages of the revolution to train and to Mellis in return for financial backing. When on January 8, 1868, the first issue of her paper came off the press, her heart swelled with pride and satisfaction as she turned over its pages, read its good editorials, and under the frank of Democratic Congressman James Brooks of New York, sent out 10,000 copies to all parts of the country. The revolution promised to discuss not only subjects which were of particular concern to her and Elizabeth Stanton, such as educated suffrage, irrespective of sex or color, equal pay for women for equal work and practical education for girls as well as boys but also the eight-hour day labor problems and a new financial policy for america this new financial policy the dream of george francis train advocated the purchase of american goods only the encouragement of immigration to rebuild the South and to settle the country from ocean to ocean, the establishment of the French financing systems, the Crédit Foncier and Crédit Mobilier to develop our mines and railroads, the issuing of greenbacks and penny ocean postage to strengthen the brotherhood of labor. All in all, it was not a program with wide appeal. Dazzled by the opportunities for making money in this new, undeveloped country, people were in no mood to analyze the social order or to consider the needs of women or labor or the living standards of the masses. 
Unfamiliar with the New York Stock Exchange, they found little to interest them in the paper's financial department. While speculators and promoters, such as Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, wanted no advice from the lone eagle George Francis Train, and resented Mellis's columns of Wall Street gossip, which often portrayed them in an unfavorable light. Nor did a public affairs paper, edited and published by women, carry much weight. None of this, however, mattered much to Susan, who did not aim for a popular paper, but to make public sentiment. It was her hope that just as the Liberator, under William Lloyd Garrison, had been the pillar of light and of fire to the slave's emancipation, so the revolution would become the guiding star to the enfranchisement of women. Upon Susan fell the task of building up subscriptions, soliciting advertisements, and getting copy to the printer, as her office in the New York World Building, 37 Park Row, was on the fourth floor, and the printer was several blocks away, on the fifth floor of a building without an elevator, her job proved to be a test of physical endurance. To this was added an ever-increasing financial burden, for Train had sailed for England when the first number was issued, had been arrested because of his irish sympathies and had spent months in a dublin jail from which he sent them his thoughts on every conceivable subject but no money for the paper he had left six hundred dollars with susan and had instructed mellis to make payments as needed but this soon became impossible and she had to face the alarming fact that if the paper were to continue, she must raise the necessary money herself. Because the circulation was small, it was hard to get advertisers, particularly as she was firm in her determination to accept only advertisements of products she could recommend. Patent medicines and any questionable products were ruled out subscriptions came in encouragingly but in no sense met the deficit which piled up unrelentingly her goal was one hundred thousand subscribers she had gone to washington at once to solicit subscriptions personally from the president and members of congress ben wade of ohio headed the list of senators who subscribed and loyal as always to women's suffrage, encouraged her to go ahead and push her cause. It has got to come, he added, but Congress is too busy now to take it up. Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts greeted her gruffly, telling her that she and Mrs. Stanton had done more to block Reconstruction in the last two years than all others in the land but he subscribed, because he wanted to know what they were up to. Although Senator Pomeroy was sore about Kansas and her alliance with the Democrats, he nevertheless subscribed. But Senator Sumner was not to be seen. 
the first member of the house to put his name on her list was her dependable understanding friend george julian of indiana and many others followed his lead for two hours she waited to see president johnson in an anteroom among the huge half-bushel measure spittoons and terrible filth where the smell of tobacco and whiskey was powerful when she finally reached him he immediately refused her request explaining that he had a thousand such solicitations every day not easily put off she countered at once by remarking that he had never before had such a request in his life you recognize mr johnson she continued that mrs stanton and myself for two years have boldly told the republican party that they must give ballots to women as well as to negroes and by means of the revolution we are bound to drive the party to this logical conclusion or break it into a thousand pieces as was the old whig party unless we get our rights this brought him to his pocket-book she triumphantly reported and in a bold hand he signed his name andrew johnson as much as to say anything to get rid of this woman and break the radical party she was proud of her paper proud of its typography which was far more readable than the average news sheets of the day with their miserably small print the larger type and less crowded pages were inviting the articles stimulating parker pillsbury covering congressional and political developments and the impeachment trial of president johnson with which he was not in sympathy was fearless in his denunciations of politicians their ruthless intrigue and disregard of the public during the turbulent days when the impeachment trial was front-page news everywhere the revolution proclaimed it as a political maneuver of the republicans to confuse the people and divert their attention from more important issues such as corruption in government high prices taxation and the fabulous wealth being amassed by the few this of course roused the intense disapproval of wendell phillips theodore tilton and horace greeley all of whom regarded johnson as a traitor and shouted for impeachment it ran counter to the views of susan's brother daniel who telegraphed senator ross of kansas demanding his vote for impeachment although no supporter of president johnson susan was now completely awake to the political manipulations of the radical republicans and what seemed to her their readiness to sacrifice the good of the nation for the success of their party she repudiated them all all but the rugged ben wade always true to women's suffrage and the tall handsome chief justice salmon p chase who she believed stood for justice and equality both of these men susan regarded as far better qualified for the presidency than general grant 
who now was the obvious choice of the Republicans for 1868. Why go pell-mell for Grant, asked the Revolution, when all admit that he is unfit for the position? It is not too late, if true men and women will do their duty to make an honest man like Ben Wade president. Let us save the nation. As to the Republican Party, the sooner it is scattered to the four winds of heaven, the better. Later, when Chase was out of the running among Republicans and not averse to overtures from the Democrats, the revolution urged him as the Democratic candidate with universal suffrage as his slogan. Susan demanded civil rights, suffrage, education, and farms for the Negroes, as did the Republicans, but she could not overlook the political corruption which was flourishing under the military control of the South, and she recognized that the Republicans' insistence on Negro suffrage in the South did not stem solely from devotion to a noble principle, but also from an overwhelming desire to ensure victory for their party in the coming election. These views were reflected editorially in the Revolution, which, calling attention to the fact that Connecticut, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Pennsylvania had refused to enfranchise their Negroes, asked why Negro suffrage should be forced on the South before it was accepted in the North. The Fourteenth Amendment was having hard sledding, and the Revolution repudiated it, calling instead for an amendment granting universal suffrage, or in other words, suffrage for women and Negroes. The Revolution also discussed in editorials by Mrs. Stanton other subjects of interest to women, such as marriage, divorce, prostitution, and infanticide all of which Susan agreed needed frank, thoughtful consideration, but which other papers handled with kid gloves. In still another unpopular field, that of labor and capital, the revolution also pioneered fearlessly, asking for shorter hours and lower wages for workers, as it pointed out labor's valuable contribution to the development of the country. It also called attention to the vicious contrasts in large cities, where many lived in tumble-down tenements in abject poverty, while the few, with more wealth than they knew what to do with, spent lavishly and built themselves palaces. Sentiments such as these increased the indignation of Susan's critics, but she gloried in the output of her two courageous editors, just as she had gloried in the evangelistic zeal of the anti-slavery crusaders. Wisely, however, she added to her list of contributors some of the popular woman writers of the day, among them Alice and Phoebe Carey. She ran a series of articles on women as farmers, machinists, inventors, and dentists, secured news from foreign correspondents, mostly from England, and published a Washington letter and women's rights news from the States. 
believing that women should become acquainted with the great women of the past, especially those who fought for their freedom and advancement, she printed an article on Francis Wright and serialized Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Eagerly, Susan looked for favorable notices of her paper in the press. Much to her sorrow, Horace Greeley's New York Tribune completely ignored its existence, as did her old standby, the anti-slavery standard. The New York Times ridiculed, as usual, anything connected with women's rights or women's suffrage. The New York Home Journal called it plucky, keen, and wide awake, although some of its ways are not at all to our taste. Theodore Tilton, in the Congregationalist paper The Independent, commented in his usual facetious style, which pinned him down neither to praise nor unfriendliness, but Susan was grateful to read, The revolution from the start will arouse, thrill, edify, amuse, vex and nonplus its friends, but it will command attention. It will conquer a hearing. Newspapers were generally friendly. Miss Anthony's woman's rights paper, declared the Troy New York Times, is a realistic, well-edited, instructive journal, and its beautiful mechanical execution renders its appearance very attractive. The Chicago Working Man's Advocate observed, We have no doubt it will prove an able ally of the labor reform movement. Nellie Hutchinson of the Cincinnati Commercial, one of the few women journalists, described sympathetically for her readers the neat, comfortable Revolution office and Susan with her rare but genial smile. Susan, the determined, the invincible destined to be vice-president or secretary of state, adding, The world is better for thee, Susan. While new friends praised, old friends pleaded unsuccessfully with Mrs. Stanton and Parker Pillsbury to free themselves from Susan's harmful influence. William Lloyd Garrison wrote Susan of his regret and astonishment that she and Mrs. Stanton had so taken leave of their senses as to be infatuated with the Democratic Party and to be associated with that crack-brained harlequin and semi-lunatic George Francis Train. She published his letter in the Revolution with an answer by Mrs. Stanton, which not only pointed out how often the Republicans had failed women, but reminded Garrison how he had welcomed into his anti-slavery ranks anyone and everyone who believed in his ideas. A motley crew it was. She recalled the label of fanatic which had been attached to him, how he had been threatened and pelted with rotten eggs for expressing his unpopular ideas and for burning the Constitution which he declared sanctioned slavery. With such a background, she told him, he should be able to recognize her right, and Susan's to judge all parties and all men on what they did for women's suffrage. 
none of these arguments made any impression upon Garrison or upon Lucy Stone, whose bitter criticism and distrust of Susan's motives wounded Susan deeply. Only a few of her old friends seemed able to understand what she was trying to do. Among them Martha C. Wright, who, at first critical of her association with Train, now wrote of the revolution, "'Its vigorous pages are what we need. Count on me now and ever as your true and unswerving friend.'" another bright spot was susan's friendship with anna e dickinson with whom she carried on a lively correspondence scratching oft-hurried notes to her on the backs of old envelopes or any odd scraps of paper that came to hand whenever anna was in new york she usually burst into the revolution office showered susan with kisses and carried on such an animated conversation about her experiences that the whole office force was spellbound admiring at the same time her stylish costume and jaunty velvet cap with its white feather very becoming on her short black curls repeatedly susan urged anna to stay with her in her plain quarters at forty-four bond street or in her nice hall bedroom at one sixteen east twenty-third street that anna could have risen out of the hardships of her girlhood to such popularity as a lecturer and to such financial success was to susan like a fairy tale come true scarcely past twenty anna not only had moved vast audiences to tears but was sought after by the republicans as one of their most popular campaign speakers and had addressed congress with president lincoln in attendance susan had been sadly disappointed that anna had not seen her way clear to speak a strong word for women in the kansas campaign but she hoped that this vivid talented young woman would prove to be the evangel who would lead women into the kingdom of political and civil rights it never occurred to her that she herself might even now be that evangel by this time susan had been called on the carpet by some of the officers of the american equal rights association because she had used the association's office as a base for business connected with the train lecture tour and the establishment of the revolution. She was also accused of spending the funds of the association for her own projects and to advertise train. Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, and Stephen Foster were particularly suspicious of her. Her accounts were checked and rechecked by them, and found in good order. However, at the annual meeting of the association in May 1868, Henry Blackwell again brought the matter up. Deeply hurt by his public accusation, she once more carefully explained that because there had been no funds except those which came out of her own pocket, or had been raised by her, she had felt free to spend them as she thought best. This obviously satisfied the majority, 
many of whom expressed appreciation of her year of hard work for the cause. She later wrote Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Even if not one old friend had seemed to have remembered the past and it had been swallowed up, overshadowed by the train cloud, I should still have rejoiced that I have done the work for no human prejudice or power can rob me of the joy the compensation i have stored up therefrom that it is wholly spiritual i need but tell you that this day i have not two hundred dollars more than i had the day i entered upon the public work of women's rights and anti-slavery what troubled her most at these meetings was not the animosity directed against her by henry blackwell and lucy stone but the assertion made by frederick douglas and agreed to by all the men present that negro suffrage was more urgent than woman suffrage when lucy stone came to the defense of women's suffrage in a speech whose content and eloquence susan thought surpassed that of any other mortal woman speaker she was willing to forgive lucy anything and wrote thomas wentworth higginson i want you to know that it is impossible for me to lay a straw in the way of any one who personally wrongs me if only that one will work nobly in the cause in their own way in time they may try to hinder my success but i never theirs realizing that it would be futile for her to spend any more time trying to persuade the american equal rights association to help her with her woman's suffrage campaign she now formed a small committee of her own headed by elizabeth cady stanton it included elizabeth smith miller the liberal wealthy daughter of garrett smith abby hopper gibbons the quaker philanthropist and social worker and mary cheney greeley the wife of horace greeley who in spite of the fact that her husband now opposed woman suffrage continued to take her stand for it this committee with the revolution as its mouthpiece was soon acting as a clearinghouse for women's suffrage organizations throughout the country and called itself the woman's suffrage association of america to the national republican convention in chicago which nominated general grant for president these women sent a carefully worded memorial asking that the rights of women be recognized in the reconstruction it was ignored thereupon susan turned to the democrats attending with mrs stanton a pre-convention rally in new york addressed by governor horatio seymour given seats of honor on the platform they attracted considerable attention and the new york sun commented editorially that this honor conferred upon them by the democrats not only committed miss anthony and mrs stanton to governor seymour's views but also committed the democrats to incorporate a woman suffrage plank in their platform 
This was too much for some of the officers of the American Equal Rights Association, whose executive committee now adopted a sarcastic resolution proposing that Susan attend the National Democratic Convention and prove her confidence in the Democrats by securing a plank in their platform. Ignoring the unfriendly implications of this resolution and the ridicule heaped upon her by the New York City papers, Susan made plans to attend the Democratic Convention, which for the first time since the war was bringing Northern and Southern Democrats together for the dedication of their new imposing headquarters, Tammany Hall and which was also attracting many liberals who, disgusted by the corruption of the Republicans, were looking for a new departure from the Democrats. To the amazement of the delegates, Susan, with Mrs. Stanton, and several other women, walked into the convention when it was well under way, and sent a memorial up to Governor Seymour, who was presiding. He received it graciously, announcing that he held in his hand a memorial of the women of the United States signed by Susan B. Anthony, and then turned it over to the secretary to be read while the audience shouted and cheered. The sonorous passages demanding the enfranchisement of women rang out through and above the bedlam. We appeal to you because... You have been the party heretofore to extend the suffrage. It was the Democratic Party that fought most valiantly for the removal of the property qualification from all white men and thereby placed the poorest ditch digger on a political level with the proudest millionaire. And now you have an opportunity to confer a similar boon on the women of the country and thus perpetuate your political power for decades to come. To hear these words read in a national political convention was to Susan worth any ridicule she might be forced to endure. She was not allowed to speak to the convention, as she had requested, and shouts and jeers continued as her memorial was hurriedly referred to the resolutions committee where it could be conveniently overlooked the republican press reported the incident with sarcasm and animosity the tribune deeply wounding her miss susan b anthony has our sincere pity she has been an ardent suitor of democracy and they rejected her overtures yesterday with screams of laughter. The Democrats' nomination of Horatio Seymour and Frank Blair was as reactionary and unpromising of a new departure as was the choice of General Grant and Schuyler Colfax by the Republicans. Thereupon, the revolution called for a new party, a people's party, which would be sincerely devoted to the welfare of all the people. So strongly did Susan feel about this, that in one of her few signed editorials she declared, Both the great political parties, pretending to save the country, are only endeavoring to save themselves. In their hands humanity has no hope, 
the sooner their power is broken as parties the better the revolution calls for construction not reconstruction who will aid us in our grand enterprise of a nation's salvation to darling anna she wrote more specifically both parties are owned body and soul by the gold gamblers of the nation and so far as the honest working men and women of the country are concerned it matters very little which succeeds oh that the gods would inspire men of influence and money to move for a third party universal suffrage and anti-monopolist of land and gold end of chapter 11